0: If you have a Bible, and I would encourage you to open it to Philippians chapter 2. If you're not used to using a Bible, scattered throughout the pews are black pew Bibles, and you can find Philippians 2 on page 922 in those Bibles. I think you'll be helped to have in front of you God's Word. The text of Scripture that we will cover is Philippians two nineteen to the end of the chapter, verse 30. I don't know how much this idea has ever been brought to your attention, but it was brought to mind recently, and I thought it was profound. The idea was that the Christian religion is enshrined in documents. Enshrined, preserved, recorded, and founded by a person that texts write about that person the conscious program of the earliest Christians was to not root their lives in a tomb or a fixed shrine dedicated to certain objects. Rather, the earliest Christians rooted their lives, their beliefs, even giving their lives because of a spoken message about a man that we call the gospel. And that message was recorded in texts. The earliest records of Christianity, therefore, are not found in temples, tombs, findings from archaeological digs where we need to interpret clay pots and what they might say about the first century. We're not gathering here and studying a painting. Pictures. We're trying to interpret hieroglyphics. You as a Christian, if you follow Jesus, some of you might have sang just a second ago, I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, that does not require you paying homage to a holy land or going to a holy site. Nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to bow down to a site, but to a person that we learn about in texts. We follow not a dead man whose body sits in an old tomb, but a risen Lord, a living human being who is our Savior, alive right now, and we only learn about him because of texts. Now, for some of you, that may not be as profound as it was for me, but just studying history, And thinking about world religions and considering the uniqueness of how Christians in the early days self-consciously enshrined the religion of the Christian faith in words. The big idea of this morning's message is that the life-changing power of the gospel has been preserved in texts and it is perceived in people. You can see the power of the gospel in the lives of the people you read about in the text of Scripture, but precisely and fundamentally about a person, Jesus Christ. You can see the power of the gospel in the person of the gospel, Christ, but also the people who read these texts, wrote these texts, believed in these texts. Another way to summarize what I just said is that God's word is living. It is an active word. God's main point to communicate to us in the Bible is God himself, who is revealed in the person of Christ. So, as we read Philippians, we're reading an old text. It's been copied and copied then translated, and now you have an English Bible in front of you. And we are giving our time and attention to words on a page because from them we learn about a person who is alive. And I'm convinced, as I told you at the very beginning of this service, that if we behold this person, we will become like him. And that, my friends, is good for the glory and honor of God. It is good for you. It is good for the world to become more like Christ, My guess is many of you are here today precisely because you want to be more like Jesus. So let's read this text. And let me show you throughout walking through this text how what on the surface feels like a very mundane, everyday kind of travel narrative log of an ancient document becomes life-transforming power. That's a bold statement. Well, let me back it up. Let's read it. And let's unpack Philippians two, nineteen to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, this ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving active word. And my prayer is that as we work through this text, he will write its truth on your hearts and change you to be more like Jesus Christ. Anyone say amen to that? Philippians is a powerful book, jam-packed with some of Christians' favorite verses. Some of you may not read the Bible very much. In fact, just the other day I was talking with one of my neighbors. I was talking to him about the Bible and he had not read much of the Bible before and asked, hey, I'm teaching Philippians. You ever read Philippians before? He's like, no. I said, I bet you actually have heard about Philippians before. I said, watch. You ever heard this before? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, through Christ, who gives me strength. Now, by a show of hands, you guys ever heard that one before? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? That's Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Have you ever heard, for me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. And then I just kept going on and on about the greatest hits in Philippians. I said, have you ever heard that passage where it says, he who began a good work will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus? That's Philippians. Have you ever heard, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things present your requests before God. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. There are so many good coffee cup verses in Philippians. Artwork verses in Philippians. I'd say if you were to take like the top 10 greatest hits of verses that you hear from Philippians. Or, or not Philippians, but the whole New Testament, like many of them might be in Philippians. But none of them come from our passage I just read. My guess is most of you have that like, you know, temptation to, you know, you read a passage that basically is about what? What? Paul's travel plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus. And you're wondering, what's the big deal? Is this just you reading my email inbox and seeing that on Tuesday I have flight number 787 from United Airlines that leaves at 6.30 PM to go to Baltimore and land at BWI? Is that all we're seeing here? Just some basic instructions about travel plans? oh well, of course not and even if we were it could be interesting to some of you historians but it is so so much more than that because of the way that Paul has described these two men and the way that he has described why he's sending them and why it is not at the end of the letter but right here in the middle most of the travel greetings kind of more yawning type things that we might be like oh we can pass over that helpful historical background but like gospel power, coffee cup verses. Typically, we're not thinking about those greeting sections, but here, this is in the middle. This is not a greeting or conclusion to the letter. We're right dab in the middle of Philippians. So I argued already that I believe the big idea is that the life-changing power of the gospel has been preserved for us in texts, specifically this text. The life-changing power of the gospel is clarified in this passage, and it is perceived by the people that are in the passage. If you get to know Paul, who's writing, and if you get to know Timothy, and if you get to know Epaphroditus, you might then get to know Jesus. And if you do, you might start to behold the transforming power of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. So, for the sake of my outline, three points. Paul has confidence in God's work in the Philippian church, point one. Point two, Paul has confidence in God's work in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Third and finally, Pastor Phil, I've never done this before, but I am putting myself in a point of a sermon. Pastor Phil has confidence in God's work in Embassy Church. The key subject of all three points is not Pastor Phil, Timothy, Paul, or Epaphroditus or or Timothy. The key subject that I would like you to consider is God and his work in the Philippians, his work in Timothy, his work in Epaphroditus, and his work that we should be confident about at Embassy Church, especially June, July, and August. More on that in a minute. First, Paul has confidence in God's work in the Philippian church. I think we've already seen this in the letter, but our first verse in our passage, verse 19, says this I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. What do you think? I've given you several reasons why Philippian exists. Here's reason number four. First reason, thank them for their partnership in the gospel. Second reason, reassure them of the progress and the power of the gospel. Third reason, to exhort them to faithful citizenship to Jesus Christ, their Lord and King. Fourth reason this letter exists, it's right here, verse 19. I'm hoping, and he's informing them through this letter, that he's going to send Timothy to the Philippian church, because Timothy is with him. If you go back at verse one of chapter one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And then also to the overseers and deacons. I'm hoping, trusting in the sovereign providence of the Lord, I'm not presuming tomorrow, if the Lord wills, in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm hoping that we will be able to send Timothy to you soon. Why? So that I too may be cheered, have joy by the news of you. Paul is writing this letter to inform them that Epaphroditus has carried this letter to them. We're going to read about that in a second. But it also that he has plans to also send them Timothy in the future so that Timothy can report about how the church is doing after receiving this letter. Do you guys follow the logic here? Epaphroditus took the letter from Paul, read it or gave it to somebody to read in front of a church service. Paul's hoping that he will hear reports that they read and received the letter from Epaphroditus, this very letter, and that he would be cheered by the report about the Philippians. What's point one? Paul has hope and confidence that God will use his word to work in the Philippians so that when Timothy reports back to Paul, it is good news, not bad news. He is assuming the best. He is confident in the work that God began in them to be completed until the day of Christ Jesus. He is confident and hopeful that Philippians 2, 12, and 13 will happen when God's word is read to the Philippians, that they will work out their salvation with fear and trembling because of their relying on the God who is at work within them for his good pleasure. That's why he uses the word hope. I hope. And it is not like you and I use the word hope in English or in everyday conversations, Well, I hope it doesn't rain later today. That would be a bummer. We were hoping to hang out with Xavier at Twin Lakes Park today. And if we get rained out, oh, shucks. That's how sometimes we use the word hope, like wishful thinking. That is not his word here. I have confident expectations and trust that God, by his grace, will be able to send Timothy to you so that he will get a report, and that report will be good. Do you have that kind of optimism? I don't think it's just because I'm an optimistic person. I'm seeing this in the text itself. Paul is hopeful for the Philippians here and elsewhere. So I want you to realize that because of the gospel and because of God's work in the Philippians, he is hoping to hear that Timothy will have a good report when is Paul going to send Timothy soon but not now after Paul's situation is sorted out the text says what's the situation that needs sorted out well it could be to hear of whether or not his head's going to get chopped off he's going to get killed he might die we already read that in chapter one so he's either going to support Paul until we find out is Paul going to live or die is he going to be released from prison or not Or it could just be he's helping Paul with other ministry matters. And he's like, hey, we've got a big, important ministry thing going on here in this prison jail. Timothy's free. He's not in jail. Paul is in jail. He's in house arrest. Timothy can come and go. Paul is stuck to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, six-hour shifts, chained up because of the gospel. And that's what he means. I want to send Timothy ahead, and I hope to hear a good report. Point one. Paul has confidence in God's work in the Philippians. I'm going to save all the applications for the end about Phil's confidence in God's work at embassy. But before we move on to that one, point two. Paul has confidence in God's work in Timothy and in Epaphroditus. He is confident that these men are mature servants of, who will serve the advance of the gospel and the building up of the local church, and he speaks highly of them. What can we learn about Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, let's take Timothy first. Let's see again that he not only hopes to send Timothy. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him. It's actually the word for like-minded. I have no one else that is as like-minded as Timothy is. Notice what mindset Timothy has. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul is confident that in the future, that when Timothy comes, he will be selfless and he will genuinely and empathetically care for the Philippians. That's confident, isn't it? I so trust Timothy that when I send him, he will love you. He keeps going on doesn't stop there 21 for a lot of people seek their own interests not those of jesus christ apparently if you seek the interests of others you are seeking the interest of christ and that's what he's confident timothy will do is have the mindset of paul which is none other than the mindset of christ Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. This is a phrase that means he passed the test. Not like a test in school, not on paper, not a theological exam or something. This is the proven character test. That over time, time and time again, no matter what the hardships are, Timothy proves himself faithful. It's the word that is used to talk about like something being put in the fire and then it comes out and all of the garbage gets burned and melt away but only the metal and the gold remains. That's Timothy. Maybe not quite pure gold, but he's close. He's been proven over time, refined by the trials of this life. But you know Timothy, his proven worth, how as a son with a father has served with me in the gospel. And this word served is slave. It's the same word used to talk about Jesus Christ in Philippians 2.7, that he became a slave, a servant. It's the same word used in verse one of the, the letter. I, Paul, am a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul looks at Timothy as his son. And he calls him my son who served alongside with me not under me, with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I will see how things work out with me and I trust, there's that confident trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. That's Timothy. Do you see it? Paul's confident that when he sends Timothy, the Philippians will respond well, point one. Point two, Paul is confident that Timothy will be faithful with the task of caring for, self-sacrificial love toward the Philippians. Let's look at Epaphroditus now. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. This is the only Bible passage we have about Epaphroditus. So if you're wondering, oh, who's Epaphroditus? We don't know. This is what we got right here. What we do know is that that name, Epaphroditus, well, that's a Greek name. Maybe you've heard of Aphrodite. Oh, that sounds familiar. Aphrodite, Epaphroditus. Well, that's because the name Epaphroditus is, is about one who is being named after the God of love, Aphrodite. So it seems like he grew up not in a Jewish home, but a Greek home. So we know that about Epaphroditus. We also know that he is the messenger. He's a brother. He's a Christian. He's a fellow worker. And that he has, for a long time, been longing to be with the Philippians again because he was sent from the Philippian church. So let's just at least read between the lines. Epaphroditus was in Philippi as a Greek, as a Roman citizen. He heard the gospel. Some point, he became a Christian, a brother. And he now wanted to give his life for the ministry of the gospel. In fact, he almost did. He almost died. He was sent from the Philippian church to take a care package. And we learn more about that in chapter 4. That he, he is the messenger who carries a care package. It probably had money, food. It probably even had the parchment, which was extremely expensive, to write this very letter on it. And then he brought it to Paul in his home assignment, jail cell, whatever condition he's in, in prison. He sticks around for a little bit, and he gets really, really sick. He almost died. But by the mercy of God, not by incredible doctors, but by God's sovereign mercy, he didn't die. But in the meantime, the Philippians heard that he was really, really sick and that he almost died. So now he's thinking, oh no, the last thing they heard was that I was about to die, and we've not given them any updates or reports. I mean, imagine some of you just recently heard, Pastor Phil has a blood clot, he's in the hospital, and he didn't get to preach on Easter Sunday. Oh my goodness, is he going to die? I mean, some of you literally said this. So this is kind of fresh. It's kind of helpful and encouraging to see me on stage and say, guys, I'm doing well, praise the Lord. The Lord, by his mercy, has preserved my life for another day, just as he has yours. For that very reason... Epaphroditus has been eager to go back to Philippi and encourage everybody in the flesh and say, I'm doing well, God saved me from death. And that's why he was eager to go so they wouldn't be nervous or worried and then show back up in Philippi with the letter from Paul and his very life. That's the short summary of Epaphroditus. But notice the way Paul talks about him on the basis of this story. He's been longing to be with you all because you were distressed And he was distressed, knowing that they knew that he was ill. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, and there it is, near death. We don't know why or in what way he was sick. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, we know that Paul really likes this Epaphroditus guy. He might have met him all the way back in the early days of the Philippian church when it got started, when Paul was there. He certainly got to know him as he brought this gift And they spent time together, and he's like, man, if this brother died, that would be sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 29, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. Men like Epaphroditus. Why should we honor Epaphroditus? He nearly died for the work of Christ he gambled that's the literal word in Greek he gambled he risked his life to complete that which was lacking in your service to me the Philippians had a partnership in the gospel with Paul from the very early days and there was something lacking in their ability to serve Paul you know what it was humans human face-to-face in-person relationships they could only have service from a distance, prayers, but there was something that he needed. He needed physical, tangible expressions of love from Jesus Christ in a human right in front of him. There was something lacking in the Philippians' love and service to Paul. And Epaphroditus was that representative from the Philippian church that demonstrated the love of Jesus by being there, giving the gift, and saying, Paul, We at Philippi, we're praying for you and we love you. And he felt and received the love and that's why Philippians is filled with such joy and affection for the parties involved. And here you can see it just kind of dripping all over this text. So let's pause. Have you seen in both Timothy and Epaphroditus the life-transforming power of the gospel on display? Is Paul just giving travel narrative or he is loading that travel narrative and giving commendations of the people involved in this story and saying, I want you to look at Timothy. Consider his character, his proven worth. I want you to look at Epaphroditus and I want you to honor a man who would so give his life for the sake of the gospel. I think that the life-transforming power of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, has gripped the hearts of Timothy and Epaphroditus. If you read this text, I think that might see exactly what I'm seeing. And Paul has confidence that God will continue that work in them. So let's conclude with some applications. Let's think about us. Embassy Church. Your pastor. Me. Pastor Phil. I have confidence that the work that God has began in us is doing through us. It will continue, and it will be completed to the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident in the gospel and in the power of God's word that there are men and women who are members of this church that display proven character and show the image of Jesus Christ imperfectly but truly in the way that they walk, and the way they carry their lives, the way they speak, the way they serve this church selflessly like Timothy. So I want to highlight two things that I already did from this passage and hopefully apply them to our church from Philippians 2. First, did you notice that phrase when talking about Timothy in verse 21? For everybody else seems to seek their own interests. And they don't seek the interests of Jesus Christ. But Timothy, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Do you see why this is not a travel narrative of concluding little details at the end of a letter, but it is smack dab in the center of this letter? Well, if you were here last week, if you've read Philippians before, this language sounds familiar, shouldn't it? Who considers The interests of others as a mindset of Jesus Christ. Where have we heard that before? Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is the word for vain glory, empty glory. Paul says in verse 3 do nothing. Don't have a single action or a single word that flows out of a heart of selfishness or empty glory where you try and pursue your own glory, your own fame, but instead humble yourselves and in that humility count others more significant than yourselves. He elaborates, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. If you do that, verse 5, then you will have the mindset of Christ Jesus. That mindset is that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What did I say that word was? Slave. Two different instances we see Paul talk about Timothy in our passage, and he roots it in what he just said about considering others more important than themselves. And then says that Timothy is a perfect example of a Christ-like servant-slave. It's very, very simple, I think. Logically, Paul thinks that Jesus Christ, the supreme servant and example, is worthy of you to give your whole life for, to bow down to in complete and total allegiance and say, that is my Lord, and I want to do what he commands, especially live a life of humility, of considering others more important than myself. Paul has done this. Paul has trained Timothy to do this, and he is confident that Timothy does do this, lives this way, has that heart of humility. So I want to first just basically say, I, as your pastor, even if you don't currently have overflowing, brimming confidence, I want you to believe by the power of God's word that I believe that God does have the power to change you to be more like Jesus. I really do believe this. If I stop believing this, And I decide over this summer sabbatical that, you know what, I don't believe people can be changed by reading texts and staring at the glory of Christ's humility and the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. And that week after week, if we give our time and attention to behold Christ, and that that has power to change and transform your character, the moment I stop believing that, I need to quit. And you need a new pastor. I have confidence That by unfolding the scriptures and the glories of Christ, you, just like Paul, just like Timothy, will become more humble. It's really, really hard to deeply and repeatedly meditate on someone you consider to be your master, your Lord, and your Savior and see the willingness that he had to die and suffer and give everything that he had, which was way more than whatever you would give up and he did that for you, how are you not willing to give everything that you have for him? I'm confident that the more we press in to the humility of Jesus Christ, the more humble you and I will become, just like Timothy. Furthermore, second thing, I want you to see That Jesus Christ did not just risk his life like Epaphroditus. He gave his life. It's almost Memorial Day. It's a time in our country where we honor men who give their lives for our country. I'm patriotic. I like being an American. I'm glad that I'm a citizen of America. But this is a gathering of embassy. Embassy of heaven. Every tribe, tongue, tongue and nation. Just in case you're wondering, we are not planning to change the preaching schedule for the sake of Memorial Day to honor soldiers, not because that that would be bad, but because that is not why we have gathered together as a church. We honor the supreme example of a God who became a man, and that man lived a sinless, perfect life and died on the cross, a shameful death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 8 says even that kind of death. And God the Father already determined that he would honor such a man and raised him from the dead and highly, it's the word, super exalted him to the highest place with the name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is our ambition to have you honor that man and anyone else who would want to have their entire lives rooted around him. What kind of people do you honor? What kind of people do you esteem, behold, admire? Do you watch sports playoffs recently? Are you in awe of athletes? Wow, look at their athleticism. Are you in awe of politicians? Well, that's a tough one. But maybe you do. Maybe you've got a lot of hope in a certain candidate at midterm elections. Some people do. What kind of men or women do we honor in our society, but more importantly, in your heart and in your church? Embassy, I am confident. Week after week, as we behold the glory of Christ in the texts of scriptures, as we work through scripture, whether it's Philippians this month, whether it's Jonah next month, whether it is the Psalms in July and August, I am confident that you have proven faithful men who will preach God's word, give you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that your hearts will be transformed as you see that Jesus is worthy of honor. Not because he risked his life, but because he gave his life. You. I'm confident that your heart will melt, just melt in awe. That someone would love you this much. That someone cares about you. That his aim and ambition is not vain and empty glory, but eternal, supreme glory. And that is none other than the man we meet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to tell you what confidence I have. Not in Timothy and Epaphroditus, but my fellow elders, Kenny, Eliezer. What confidence I have in Etienne Nell. What confidence I have in John Pay to be able to preach the book of Jonah. The confidence I have in Paul Alexander and Nate Prater, Jeremy Meeks, Mark Donald, Bill Penalto. These men have been proven. And over the course of the summer, in June, July, and August, I just want you to know that your pastor has confidence that God will work through his word as Christ is expounded upon in the word, and that it is these words from the texts of scriptures that we get to know Jesus. And I hope and pray that it is because of Jesus that you come to Embassy Church. We exist to glorify him, honor him by making disciples as we study scripture together and we honor Jesus by somebody saying, I love Jesus and I've been a Christian and I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. I just really, really think that church can be really simple sometimes. Jesus Christ, follow him. And then some of you that have been able to do that for decades, you ask other people to say, hey, follow me. Not because I'm worthy of imitation, but because Christ is. And let me just share everything I've learned about following Jesus. Some of you are very new to the Christian faith. I want to just specifically encourage you now. Do an inventory of your life. Do you have anybody that you know that you're like, man, that person, they genuinely concern, have welfare and concern about me. They love me. They check in on me. They pray for me. Like when we get together and we talk, it's like they keep asking questions about me and I have no time and room to ask questions about them. I am confident that that spirit is alive in this church. There are people that I meet with that keep asking me, well, Phil, how are you doing? How can I be praying for you? Isn't it amazing to just think about how Jesus' presence is not just in a physical body in the heavens, but Jesus is being made alive through the living word as we hear it, as we study it, as we behold the glory of Christ. And then here, you have a collection of people, some of whom are just learning what it means to follow Jesus, and they desperately need an older father or mother to help them walk alongside parenting, marriage, how to balance my work and life how to center my life around the local church. Man, we need people like that. And by God's grace, God has kindly given Embassy a whole mixture of those people. And I'm so, so confident that if I go away for three months for a summer sabbatical, that the Spirit of God will continue to do the work that he has begun. And I'm expecting and longing to be alive and then in God's grace come back stronger, healthier, and better in the month of September. I just want, as Paul is trying to do in this letter, to communicate those same words of love, of affection, and confidence, mostly in God, but also commend the men that I've listed off that will be preaching God's word and beholding for you the glories of Jesus Christ in his word. So I'd encourage each and every one of you to think deeply about who's in your life that you're imitating. You're imitating someone. And whether or not ultimately it's helping you become more and more like Christ. The Christian faith, it has been preserved in texts. But it is perceived. It is seen when you read about people. Those texts taught us about people today. We read the scriptures and we learned about, first and foremost, Jesus. And how Jesus changed Paul. And how he discipled Timothy. Timothy. And how Epaphroditus became a Christian and was willing to give his life for it. That's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? That the Christian faith is not just some sort of pie-in-the-sky philosophy, but that it's the neighbor sitting next to you right now in a pew that loves you more than they love themselves and is willing to serve you. And man, it would be so beautiful if this work that has begun just keeps multiplying all across this room and across time and space we have a church that's filled with people that are known by their love let's pray that God would help us be just that let's pray now our gracious God our heavenly father we want to give you praise we want to give you thanks for the power of the gospel we want to thank you for Christ first and foremost we thank you that Jesus is example It's not too far off for us. It's not so unattainable. Sure, we confess that we are imperfect, that we do not imitate Jesus like Jesus. But God, we want to confidently believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is not mystical but real. That your spirit does come abide in this room amongst real people. And that there are people just like Timothy that genuinely consider others more important than themselves and and are concerned about the welfare of others in this church. There are servants, there are faithful servants that are working right now that are caring for people's children so that they could hear the gospel today. God, we thank you for the nursery workers. We thank you for Christine and the work that she does as the deaconess of children's ministry. We thank you for Danielle and for the way that Her and Jenny are saying, well, while Christine's gone, we'll step up and help and serve. Because we care about this church, and we care about families, and we care about children. God, we thank you for the musicians that come and serve every week and take turns and don't get any money for it. We're not about performances on a stage and being wowed and awed and honoring people that have great musical abilities. But people that love Christ and want to serve the church by leading them in song. God, we want to thank you. For Erica and the way that she gathers every week, a team of volunteers that organize hospitality needs so that we can have meals together in the morning or the lunch that's coming up in two weeks. Selfless, sacrificial, others-centered way of life is not far off. It is here in this room, and we want to praise you, God, for the evidences of your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that is perceived, it's on display. The texts are not old and dead, they're alive. And they're alive in humans that have considered Christ their Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit have a work that has begun in their heart. And by your good pleasure, you are working out that salvation. Oh God, I pray that these few examples and the many more that I have failed to mention, I pray that you would give such bold confidence in everybody here today in the life-transforming power of the gospel. And that we would look around and we would imitate Christ and then spur each other on in learning from one another how we can pray, how we can study your word, how we can gather together each week. Be encouraged in song and word and prayer, taking the Lord's Supper to see Jesus. Give us that grace now, in Jesus' name. Amen.